The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey everyone, welcome to Scissoring Isn't a Thing. Come on down. I'm here with my beautiful, like, like shocked co-host Liz Cully. I am Darren Karp. Liz, you let me intro it as we like to kind of balance back and forth. And I feel like you weren't expecting me to be very game show hosty, which is odd because you've known me now for like three years. And I feel like you should know that I want to be a game show host. Yeah, I just didn't know if I was going to win anything. Oh, oh, I think oh, that's oh. like what I was. That was the You phase. win my presence and you win mm. a nice little intro with me where basically... I know we have, like, a news thing to get to, but can I just, like, vent to you up top for a minute? Yeah, girl, that's what I'm here for. Well, obviously, you have your gorgeous dog, Ravioli. And what kind of dog is Ravioli? Ravioli, we did the full DNA test, is Chihuahua, Miniature Pincher, Cocker Spaniel, Springer Spaniel, Bolognese. What the fuck? The pasta meat? (laughs) No, Bolognese is an Italian little white dog. Like, who would have known we named her so perfectly? And then she is 6% Pooley. Do you know what a Pooley is? No. It's the little dread dogs with dreads that Mark Zuckerberg Doesn't has. Doesn't it kind of, who like, known? make you, like, shocked of, like, how that genetic combination came to of course. be? Like, that's just, I like, know. what kind of, like, inbreeding are we doing? But Ravioli's perfect, but... No, she's not inbred. She's fucking no, every she's like, But she's like thing. gotten through the years yeah. of it. It has gotten crazy. Exactly. Um, well, I am dog sitting for two wonderful little men, my men, my posse. And if you had seen my Instagram story, so we're recording this on a Wednesday and this is going to get released on a Friday. For anyone out there that may have seen my Instagram story on Tuesday, while I was FaceTime with my girlfriend Nadine, one of my little chunkos, one of my little doggos decided to hump my arm. I saw that on your Instagram. And, you know, Nadine was like, he's just trying to dominate you. Like, you got to stop that. Now, I've never, I had a dog with my ex, but it was her dog. So I didn't grow up knowing dogs' behaviors. How old is the dog? I've got two. One's a Bichon Frise and one is a little Pomeranian. Um, and co- But the palm, the, po- the palm was Zico. humping you. Yeah, Zico was humping me. But how old is like Zico? Like seven. So he's being naughty. He is assert- he's wanting you to play with him and he's asserting dominance. So, so I always play with no. him. That's the thing is like when I got him, they were like, you know, he's pretty yappy. You can put these like humane bark collars on them that I guess like send like like they kind of prevent barking at least to like a limited time. I didn't know. But I was like, sure. listen, I'm by myself. Nadine's not here. I have to do a show. I have to do podcasts like give me the collar just in case. And when he first got here, I was he was like freaked out. So the Bijan Frise is named Kai, and then the little Pomeranian is named Zico, who's like my boy. They're my they're my fucking entourage, and so Zico was like freaking out, and then like I just started to love up on him. Like I'd sit on the floor and I'd start like, you know, like start like getting right. his face, and he just like stopped barking. And then I asked the owners, I was like, what do you do with him at night? I was like, do, do they sleep in bed? Do they sleep in their crate? Like, I don't know. They didn't give you like a full list of what to do. It's a long story that I can get into, not on the podcast to embarrass anyone. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. But no, um, but your girl is an animal lover. So I kind of knew how to handle it. So I was like, how does he sleep? And they were like, he usually feels the safest with his no bark collar on in his crate. This is the little one. Cause Kai's like this fat Bijan who's just been like fucking chilling all day. Um, sure. They're like, Zico usually sleeps with a crate, with the bark collar on, with a blanket over the crate, I guess. Because, like, I think that... Same with okay, mine. Okay, so that helps. So when I get there, like, I'm like, come on, boys. We're going to bed. You know, and they're listening to me or whatever. And they come into the bedroom. Kai's chilling. He's on the shag rug right now, just being, like, shaggy as dog. Like, chill, chill, chill. Fatty as fat. And Zico was like, well, I'm coming into bed with you. Like, Zico was like, I'm not getting in that crate. And I, I was like, here you go. Because I thought he was going to be, like, scared to be with me. I was like, here you go. I, like, ushered it. I, like, put a little bed of blankets on. I, like, put it next to me. And he was like, absolutely not. And he would just, like, paw at me. So long story short, I have a king bed that I share with my boyfriend, Zico, who is literally seven pounds of joy. And at first when I was like freaking out that I was like, I'm not going to be able to handle this. This is two dogs by myself. I've got three full-time jobs. I was like 
having a panic attack. As soon as Zico cuddled up into like my little nook area of like my shoulder, Liz, I'm done. I'm dead. It's a new girl. I de- it's a new girl. I died. It's a new Remember day. when I started dating Nadine and you were like, who is this person? Like, who is this person that wants yeah. children and wants to get married? That's why I like, I was always an animal lover. Don't get me wrong. But like now I'm like, can I give these dogs up? Like, I, they're going to like the place that they should be going, which is a good place. It's not a shelter. It's actually to, you know, a family. But I was like, I, do, like, I, when I go out and take a, why don't you just keep the dog? Because you ha- I want to keep them together. Right. Like I, the, I don't want to separate okay. them because they've been around each other for seven years. That feels cruel. They're like brothers. Fair. And I don't know with my schedule if it's like great for me to have two dogs right now because I travel so much. Fair, and fair, they fair. It's better for to the dogs. Be, frankly, I mean, I live in a big apartment, but they deserve to be in a house with a pool, which is where they're going to be, where they can like run around, go to the yard. You know what's so weird, Darren? Is I too you deserve do, to be in well, a house with gonna a pool? Well, I'm going to create you on the flight, but I don't. Yeah. I'm going to have to give you a little Benadryl because I feel like you bark way too much. <laughs> fair, fair. Anyway, wow. I'm converted. Okay. And like, I'll still like cats. Cats are always going to be my number one. But like these dogs, like I cannot go out and take, I usually take like an hour walk a day just to like clear my head. It helps me. When I left the apartment the other day, I was like, I'm going on a walk. I just need to breathe. I was, I got like maybe eight minutes into my walk and I was like, I miss them too much. And I like turned around and came home. Why didn't you walk the dogs? Well, because I was going on like a really long walk. I was going out for an hour and little dogs, I don't think, I wasn't sure if they could handle that. So I take them usually on like 20 minute walks, but I was going, like Fair. I wanted to go fast because I was supposed to be like working out. It was like part of my workout routine and I need to walk like a 16 minute mile. And I can't do that with dogs because I don't want to be dragging them. So I was like, okay, you know, fair. so I take them out on four walks a day though. Like these boys, they get their fucking walks in. That's all I'm saying. And I'm in love and <sighs> I'm getting humped. Wow. And you know, maybe I'm straight now. I don't know. Sexuality's fluid. Wow, this was the update I didn't know I Did, needed. Right? But like I'm converted and I'm happier and I love them. And I told Nadine, I was like, this is just firmly reinforced that when you leave next time, I need animals. This isn't, mm. I need him. Like I, dog and a cat, one cat, one dog. I just, they're so cute, Liz. I know. Now you get it. Like I don't want to go out. Like I canceled all my social plans. So I was like, no, I can't leave them. Why? It's fashion week. I was supposed to be in New York this week and I want to literally gouge my eyes out. Well, fashion week's not going to be fun with all the COVID restrictions. Why? It looked really fun on Leah's Instagram last night where I was supposed to be. Why didn't you go? See, fashion is one of those things that you guys really love. I'm like, mer about it. I know. Well, I was supposed to come for my work event, but then it got canceled because of Delta and COVID restrictions. And I just, you know, I've been out of town. So I was like, eh, it seems too soon. I don't know. I miss New York. I miss everybody. I'm going to come soon. Well, I'll be there on Sunday. So maybe you and I can do a little scissoring videos in the dog park. Because now (gasps) that I'm basically a dog mom, I feel like I'm like allowed in. Like it's like the VIP entrance that I needed. Totally. I'm into it. I just wanted you to know that Kai and Zico are my boyfriends and I have a girlfriend and two boyfriends now. So I'm in like a polyamorous thing. Polyamorous. Okay. I'm into it. Well, um, this has nothing to do with that, but I I found a little, I have a little news update that I thought was interesting. So Raven Simone, who, if you guys don't know, I famously, uh, (laughs) stalked in the, Beverly Hills Bristol Farms with she and her Casual. wife. I saw them in the wild and I followed them all over the aisles. Um, apparently on a podcast that's not ours, so I will not be mentioning the name of it. She was discussing that when That's So Raven did a 2017 reboot, if you don't remember, and she came back, right. the showrunners were like, we think, you know, maybe Raven should come back as queer. Mm. And interestingly enough, Raven said no. And she said, the real reason I said no wasn't because I wasn't proud of who I was 
or I didn't want to represent the LGBTQ plus community in any way. It was because Raven Baxter is Raven Baxter is Raven Baxter. I was just going to say that. There was no reason for me to change the human that she was in order to fit the actress that played her. And Raven Baxter is a character that I was proud to play. Even if she was straight, cisgender, I don't mind. Let her have her moment. And I thought that was totally real. I mean, we talked so much about response. Yeah. But it's kind of the opposite of what response. we talk about where it's like cis hats playing a trans person or something like playing what isn't themselves. Like, and we often talk about it from like the straight person playing it. But when you're a queer person in real life, is it okay to play straight? And I feel like it should be fine. I mean, like Jonathan Groff does it all the time and Mindhunter, et cetera. I actually think that's, that's the right call to make because it's a character. I mean, granted, it's, yeah. it's a call for her. And I think that, like, she already is out. She's already sort of been that beacon for the LGBTQ+. She's certainly not shying away from it. But her playing a character that all of a sudden is gay when they weren't gay previously does feel, like, wrong to me. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I just thought it was interesting. Also, Raven Simone, if you're listening, please come on the podcast. Uh. Um, I also just want to do a little RIP to Michael K. Williams of The Wire, who you come you at guys, the king. Did you, you ever best watch? Not miss. Oh, did you ever watch The Wire? Nine thousand times. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. Oh, how'd you feel when you found out Michael K. Williams died? I was really sad. I was really sad because I know like he's like Omar. a gentle, like giant, like Omar. I also watched Boardwalk Empire, so like I knew him in that as well. I mean, Omar is like. Again, you come at the king, you best not miss. Like, a man always has his code. Like, he was such an integral figure in that. Um, Chalky White, obviously, in Boardwalk Empire was amazing. But the one thing that I always used to kind of know about him is, like, he plays these, like, you know, he's a scar across his face. Like, he always plays these, like, really, for lack of a better term, hard characters you know I mean his character in the wire like carried around like a shot off shotgun a, sh- a sawed off shotgun but was, and, gay. Like, was gay was gay was gay was a gay character and that like for the 90s for Baltimore for black culture was major especially in the drug dealings of it like major 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 it still is kind of major um and people often Super. forget that he's like the well the only kind of out gay character I mean we could argue that there were other characters on I mean like you know uh Keely Keela Keela on the cop who was also gay who's a lesbian but Omar to be like a drug dealer and gay was awesome but the only thing I've ever really read about him consistently is that he was like one of the best hardest actors and the nicest softest people in real life like a gentle giant for lack of a better term I mean he was just the sad thing is though is I've been just there was that comedian a couple weeks ago that also died from a fentanyl OD and yeah here in LA in Venice like a bunch of that like three people died That's right and like you know I mean fentanyl has been linked with a lot of famous people's death a lot of not famous people's death it's part of the epidemic and everything that's going on it's it's scary, I think, because for somebody as famous and, I mean, he was found dead in his New York City apartment, which is, like, just tragic Ugh, in its own right. It's, like, just, like, so alone. But, like, I don't know. Like, for celebrities to kind of get this thing done, like, how are the real normal people supposed to kind of, like, I don't know. I guess just be very careful if you're going to go do drugs. I mean, it's hard to say, like, don't do drugs, kids. But, like, people are doing drugs. So, like, what is the safest I know. I guess way that, to go about Well, it? I guess you can get test kits. I was actually reading about it yesterday. Um, but you can get test kits, and then you can also, there are these, like, Narcan inhalers. I don't well, know I, if I'm saying Narcan that right. Narcan is to help you when you OD on heroin. Right, but fentanyl is... Or fentanyl, too, but, but you can't, you know what it, I mean? you can't so, do that to yourself, I don't think. Oh, that's I mean, a very, maybe I didn't, see, I don't can. think about I don't, this. I've never taken heroin, so I don't really know, like, how quickly you realize Neither you've have I, OD'd. but I mean, no, I know, but I think the, the article that I was reading was effectively, like, you can get these kits and you can test the drug. Like, I don't know, dude. It's so sad. I, um, 
I don't know. I wish everyone would be careful. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but I don't know. Do some whippets or something. Like, keep it like old school. Right. Like, if you're gonna ruin your know. brain, just choose something that might not be laced with anything. Yeah. But just like go get some balloons. It's just a, it's you know a, what I the, mean? The truth of the matter is, is that it really only comes to light usually when it's famous people. But this is kind of happening everywhere without being. Oh, it's terrible. And, you know, he kind of put it at the forefront again. But just a really sad death that didn't need to happen. He died at a young age. Was an amazing actor apparently a really incredible guy I'd never met and uh Omar chalky white but Omar will definitely be missed oh big time now um our next episode today is an interesting one yes who you like definitely I mean we both were like damn vibes um she's so smart she um also what I thought was really interesting was talked about like work culture addiction, which I really loved our conversation there. Um, And she's just so incredibly smart and young and especially for her to talk about that. Sorry to interrupt, especially for her to be able to talk about that as a woman, because I feel like having a lot of ambition and like getting no sleep and just doing this and having so much drive is very I'm using stereotypes here, but I think in general in our culture, it's encouraged for men to be like that. And for women, it's like looked at at this as like odd thing. And she kind of takes it where it's just like, yeah, I was addicted to work and I needed to come back from it. And so her perspective, I think, really does like illuminate a lot of things that are kind of happening in work culture, to your point. Absolutely. And she's the founder and CEO of Period, which is all about you know, feminine hygiene products and, you know, talking about women's health, which obviously is incredibly important right now, given everything that's happening in Texas, which is so wild. Um, But I hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as Darren and I did, because we really like left it being really inspired. I felt yeah, yeah, 100%. I, it just made me think of the abortion thing in Texas. We can call it a Texodus because I hope women leave Texas immediately and show that state that uh, they can't decide what women's choices are. So a Texodus I am hoping for. Anyway, <laughs> enjoy Nadia Okamoto. We wanted to tell you about our favorite summer beverage, Bev. It's crisp, dry, refreshing wine in a can and all Five of the flavors are zero sugar, only have three carbs, and 100 calories per serving. They have rosé, sauve blanc, pinot gris, pinot noir, and a sparkling white wine. My personal favorite is the sparkling white wine because it comes in a glitter can, which I feel is really chic. But honestly, I love them all. We love Bev as a perfect addition to any summer activity brunch, a day in the park, barbecuing, hanging out on the beach, seeing your friends you haven't seen in a year. (laughs) So for all of our beautiful scissoring isn't a thing listeners, we've worked out a little deal because you know how we do over here. You guys are going to receive 20% off your first purchase plus free shipping on all orders. Try the best selling ladies night variety pack for all of their refreshing varietals. Go to Bev.com slash scissoring or use the code scissoring at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V.com slash scissoring. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Scissoring Isn't a Thing. It is my esteemed pleasure to introduce our next guest. Nadia Okamoto is a 22-year-old Harvard student. In early of 2020, Okamoto co-founded August, which is a lifestyle brand working to reimagine periods. As the Today Show describes, quote, August is a growing online community aiming to reimagine and redefine the period experience to be powerful and dignified, with members who engage in conversations about how to properly use menstrual cups or what it's like to be a transgender man having a period, for example. Nadia Okamoto is also the former executive director and founder of Period, period period.org, that is, an organization fighting to end period poverty and stigma that she founded at the age of 16, okay, under the leadership as executive director for five years, period addressed over 1.5 million periods and registered over 800 campus chapters in all 50 states and 50 other countries. She's clearly not a successful person. I don't know why we'd have this person on scissoring. In 2017, Nadia ran for public office in Cambridge, Massachusetts at age 
19. Liz, are you feeling shitty about yourself yet? Because I am. And at the time, becoming the youngest Asian American to run. In 2018, Nadia published her debut book, Period Power, a manifesto for the menstrual movement with publisher Simon & Schuster, uh, which made the Kirkus Reviews list for best young adult nonfiction of 2018. I probably pronounced that wrong. Nadia is also the former chief brand officer and current board member of JUV Consulting, a Generation Z marketing agency based in New York City. I have the esteemed pleasure of welcoming Nadia Okamoto to this. How you doing, Nadia? I'm doing well. How are you? Well, feeling shitty about myself now because feel- I'm 33 <laughs> and don't have any of those accomplishments. And Liz is even older than me. Didn't want to say it, but she's even less accomplished than me. <laughs> Sorry, Liz. Had to say it. Had to troll you oh, here. Had to troll God. you. Welcome to Scissoring isn't a thing, though. We're very lucky to get to talk to you. We have a lot of questions. Let's get into it. Okay, well, we treat everyone the same. And we open up every show asking our guests if they don't mind letting us know what your your preferred pronouns are, if you don't mind telling us how you identify sexually, if that's comfortable for you. But we just like to give everybody the opportunity to inform us and the listeners. Yeah. So I'm Nadia. I go by she, her pronouns. I am pansexual. And I am 23, not 22, so I'm like grown now, you know. <laughs> oh, she's grown. She's grown. She grown. Wow. Okay. And so, so you're pansexual, yes? How, and, and right before we kind of hopped on this recording, I kind of know something the audience doesn't, where I asked how to pronounce your name, and your mom said you pronounced it differently than you do, and I asked if I was going to piss your mom off, and you were like, my mom's totally cool with everything. How did you come out as pansexual to your to your mother, to your family? What was that kind of experience like for you, if I can ask that? Um, it, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, my mom has always been super accepting of, like, anything period sexuality related. Um, and yet I was always really scared to come out to her. Um, but at the same time, I think that I didn't come out until, like, last year. Um, like publicly. And a lot of it is because I do think that there's this part of me that is frustrated by the fact that I have to come out at all, right? Like the concept of being like, oh, I'm not who you think I was. Um, And that implied like, you know, everybody's expecting me to be heterosexual, like to, and, and, you know, even now when I talk about being pansexual and if I'm in a relationship with someone who is of the opposite sex uh, or gender identity, I get like a lot of questions about like proving it. And I think that for me being like, I'm super open about being a survivor of sexual assault. And so for me, I get very triggered when anybody's like prove your experiences or like prove your sexuality or prove your like mental health. And to me, it's really interesting because I consider myself to be very bold about a lot of things. But to me, I actually tried to not come out for as long as possible because I was just so terrified of the response that I would get more so than talking about a lot of things. Yeah, I have talked about also being a survivor of sexual assault on this show a few times. And it's interesting. Um, Yesterday I was in therapy. Also, we're a big therapy show. Just throwing that out. Yesterday, too. Okay, I I was I was in therapy before this recording. So there you go. We're all we're all therapy. I'm married uh, to a therapist like we go. We are big meant. I know it's actually kind of great. It requires therapy for Liz to be married to a therapist, essentially. Yes, that's what Um, it is. But no, I mean, I just, I say that in the sense that we talk about mental health quite a bit on this show, and Darren and I are both huge advocates for it. And, and, And however that works for a million different people, exercise, therapy, whatever. Like, no judgments here. But it's interesting because I was talking yesterday about the feeling of, um, being quieted and silenced and for lack of a better term, shut up or prove it or like having to have so much more proof over like that is such a big trigger for me, even if it has nothing to do with, quote, sex or sexuality. I, sometimes for me, it's such a trigger to have to like be the smartest and be the best and prove, 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 prove. I, I not to just dive right into it, but I I read your Birdie article, your op-ed and Birdie mm-hmm about, you know, feeling during the pandemic, you know, kind of addressing burnout culture. And, you know, as Darren read your bio, like you're so accomplished and 
you know, for lack of a better term, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please clarify, but almost an addictive feeling towards success and work, maybe as a distraction. Do you feel like, I don't know, maybe because you were so thrown into work and success that you know, coming out as pan or or talking, like it was just one thing that you're like, I'm kind of keeping this to myself since everything else you were doing is so public, running for office, doing these big things, Mm. you know, I don't know. Was it something you were kind of keeping that you didn't have to prove or? That's such a powerful question. And I would say, yeah, the article you're referring to, I was trying to write about how I identify as also recovering workaholic, right? And I think that growing up in hustle culture and, being an entrepreneur at the height of like hashtag girl boss, hashtag no sleep, all work, like this all kind of trendiness of being on the brink of burnout. Um, I don't use the term workaholic lightly. And I think that workaholic already and being addicted to work is often used as like a symbol of pride in pop culture. Um, but there's a dark side to it, right? Which is that for me, especially coming from a background of growing up with abuse, which really affected my own sense of self and sense of self-worth my first real understanding of oh i'm worthy i have purpose was through work right and it became absolutely addicting but to a dangerous perspective where when i put away work i was back in this sort of very dark place um and it was something that was okay for a while and then when kind of work took over um and i started measuring my whole self-worth by a lot of those accomplishments it wasn't a very happy life and it was really exhausting, right? Mm. And being a workaholic can look like many different things. For me, it was truly putting work over learning how to be a human, right? Forgetting to literally go poop, have a sex life, have a love life, like have any amount of sleep um, because I was always equating it to like an opportunity cost of more emails or more work, right? Um, And so I kind of, just to kind of preface that, and I would say, you know, I I think that it's, it's almost less so that I didn't want to open up about my sexuality from the perspective of keeping something to myself and more so that in the world of existing on social media as an influencer and as a creator every part of your identity almost becomes like a commodified commodifiable label right so when I ran for office I really wanted to run as like a young person right I wanted to run for office as like I am a 19-year-old college student running in a college town, right? But actually, what I've kind of learned the hard way through the last few years is every part of my identity truly becomes like an epithet behind who I am and how I show up, right? So even if I was thinking about my age and really wanting to advocate for youth activism, I was actually really labeled by my race, right? And every time I was talked about, it was not the Asian candidate, the Asian American candidate. And that was everywhere from positive press all the way to people who are like very racistly calling me the start of an Asian invasion, right? And I think that for me, um, when I was around like 18, 19, when I really started to explore my own sexuality and I saw friends who were coming out publicly, every time they were mentioned, every interview that they had, sexuality was a core part of that, right? It was always like, they weren't just a, environmental activists. They were a queer environmental activist, a gay environmental activist. And every interview they had, it was a very core part of, you know, how does your sexuality play into this? And I think for me, I so deeply felt like, you know, I already had these epithets of that I had to explain, right? Like my experience being Asian American, right? I had to too often defend my experience of being a person of color and whether or not being Asian is a person of color, right? And I think also as a survivor, like explain what that means, right? And I was Nadia, the survivor of sexual assault, right? And I think for me, it was less so that I wanted to keep it to myself, but more so like, I I felt like I wanted my work to speak for itself. And I didn't want it to be like, I am pansexual, thus I am obsessed with periods, right? Like for my work and, what I want to say being secondary to this thing that is inherently who I am. And I think if I was ever completely straight, I would never stand up and say like, I would never have to explain how being heterosexual explains my passion for the work that I do. <laughs> totally, um, totally. Which, which is it's just like very valid, right? Yeah. So the, and, and I also think at the same time, like, I think that for me, I'm very, I'm very open about my sexuality now, but I think it's because I went through, um, like residential rehab last summer where I felt like I was really hiding so much of myself. 
And I think I kind of recommitted to like, I want to be public about my life because I do feel a responsibility of having a platform to be as open as possible. And maybe that's completely naive, but I think that every time I have pushed myself to be more open, it's brought me so much beautiful community. Um, and since coming out as well, um, like subtly, not making like a huge fucking post about it, but like just subtly talking about it, I've been really blown away by the community that I've been able to find. Yeah. Well, and the community is, you know, I mean, and, and the funny thing is, is we started this because sometimes pe- even people in the community, maybe that's just the queer community for us, uh, don't know everything. And mm-hmm. we just want to genuinely, sometimes it's important to kind of ask those questions. I think it might have been the Birdie article or another article that I was reading about you. And you said that you, you know, you're a survivor of sexual assault and, you know, you dealt with a lot of trauma at a younger age and that you kind of redefined this trauma with the word no. Can you walk me through what that means to redefine it with the word no and how you, you know, do that in your life now? Yeah. Um, Well, I think that, you know, I grew up with uh, like sexual abuse in my own family and I, I never really mm-hmm. said no because when you grow up with sexual abuse, it's it, like it, I, I get asked a lot, well, like, well, why didn't you just stop it? How did you not know it was wrong? And my answer is always, well, when you grow up with how it, are you supposed to know? Yeah, you have right. no, I have no, there wasn't that and then a healthy relationship. It was just that, right? And I didn't really have pop culture necessarily to turn to of like, oh, that's like a healthy relationship of, you know, parent to child. Um, but I always had my suspicions, but I think that when you're in that dynamic where there is this like set up power dynamic as well, it's the feeling of, well, even if I were to say no, what's the point? Because it doesn't actually really matter. Right. And I think that for me, it was, you know, it started as, uh, does my no, or does my standing up for myself and setting boundaries, does that hold absolutely any weight in when it comes to something so personal, like my body? And that learning will then translate to other experiences. So when I get to high school and I start being asked to do like different projects and, you know, running different clubs and, you know, being asked to like run for like, you know, being president of MUN, like those were nothing I could say no to. Right. So I was like overcommitted, working a lot. I was like in 16 different clubs, running most of them. I was like pre-professional ballet on the boys varsity baseball team. Um, I was running a nonprofit. I started a second nonprofit in high school, like all of these things. And I think that, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you have to learn how to like set your boundaries with work. For me, it really came from this inner child that was so scared to say no, because one, I might be punished for it. And two, like, I didn't really think that my saying no mattered. And for me, I think that a lot of that led to me victimizing myself, right? Looking back on that trauma and feeling the guilt of, well, I could have said something, right? I'm, I, I'm weak for not standing up for myself. And I think really getting to an understanding where I forgive myself because it's like, I was a child that shouldn't have happened. And um, I, you know, there's no way I could have known better. And I should have been in a situation where I was empowered to say no. And then reclaiming my voice in the sense of, no, I actually can say no and people have to listen. And so for me, reclaiming my ability to say no and learning to set boundaries is a huge part of, I think, how I've been able to really uh, get out of the mindset of being like, I'm a victim who didn't stand up for myself. And instead being like, I'm a survivor who went through something that was completely out of my control and was unfair. Yeah. I think what's amazing to see is, you know, you're 10 years younger than Darren, 10-ish years younger than me. Um, It does make a difference, right? Like, I we were... You know, I was talking about, again, obviously we're apparently diving into my therapy, but you know, when I talk about like being silenced and all these things, I was, I went to boarding school and I was totally isolated from my friends and family. Like we did not have Facebook. We did not have Instagram. Email wasn't really you, like teenagers weren't using email and shit. Like we didn't have, I didn't have a cell phone. So I felt crazy scared and isolated mm-hmm. and saying no and all of these things that you're discussing, I think, again, with that power dynamic is difficult, right? But what's amazing to see is this younger generation saying no, like Simone Biles really put like Naomi Osaka, like women are really, you know, showing their generation and generations to come like boundaries and putting themselves first, which I think is such an amazing thing. When... 
with periods though, it's interesting. And I kind of want to, I want to talk about the origin of August and period org and all of these things with you, because I feel like, I don't know if you guys have both ever experienced this, but like, I don't put my period first. I don't like sometimes set the boundary or I won't be like, have you guys ever been in a situation where you're like, fuck, I just got my period. And instead of like going and asking a woman who's a stranger in a social situation, like, hey, do you have a tampon? I'll just like use toilet paper and suffer and like want to die the whole like time. Like, why do you think women don't put their bodies in their periods specifically first? And, and what was the genesis for period in August? I know that was multiple questions no. and a tangent story all in one. But here we are. I think that, well, first, before I dive in, I'll say that like when a lot of times when we talk about periods, we try to stay away from using terms like women and like just women and girls, but really like anyone who menstruates and like people who have uteruses, um, like menstruators. But I think that it actually really relates to the idea of like having to prove your experiences as a woman or as someone of a marginalized community, right? Like throughout history, women have had to like, defend and prove their experience with period pain, right? And PMS and these things throughout medical history have been labeled more as like hysteria, right? And right. like, why is mm -hmm. it that things like endometriosis and uterine fibroids are like so underdiagnosed, like under, you know, kind of researched and we don't really have truth to still is because I think that period pain in many ways or even the like need to have period products is like denied and something we almost have to like prove to ourselves and then also to society that we need, right? And I think that that in and of itself, like the disrespect for like our honest truth and lived experiences plays into those small actions of like, well, if I ask for a tampon, it's not, it's like having to overcome so many societal barriers that have been embedded into us, not only saying I deserve period care, but like I can talk about period care because periods are something that actually happen, even though society tries to keep it like silence, like it's this big secret, even though it makes human life possible, right? And like, I think that for me, okay, so like kind of on the origin story of period is, I also at age 16 had never heard about period poverty, never thought about it. And then I was meeting homeless women and hearing their stories of using toilet paper and socks and brown paper grocery bags and cardboard to take care of their periods. and through like research on Google, learn that, okay, well, food stamps don't cover period products as necessities. And they're not provided adequately in shelters, in prisons. And oh, 40 states in the US in 2014 have a sales tax on period products, considering them luxury items. Meanwhile, products like Rogan and Viagra are considered essential goods. Pink right? tax, yeah, pink the, tax, the, yeah. The tampon yeah. tax, like, so, okay. So inherently like society is basically saying that like menstrual hygiene is not like a right it's like this luxury thing that we talk about right and like we continue to see that today of even in like policy today like a lot of people who are pushing back saying oh well period products shouldn't be free in prisons because it'll make them like country clubs which is literally a quote from gop representative richard pickett um i think in maine yeah in maine a couple of years ago so it's like these different things where it's like it all kind of comes back. I don't even know how. I don't, even, how even, a, know how I don't even know how they compare that. Like, exactly. I didn't know that you put some, you throw tampons at someone. All of a sudden, we're in a country club. And oh, by club. the way, I respectfully, because I'm a total fucking wasp. I've been to many a country club, and there are no free. They don't have tampons. I know. There. I know. You got to pay extra for those tampons. So anyway, it's like yeah. it's this whole thing, which is like I feel like it all goes back to this idea of like a fundamental need. And part of our biological function of being born is that like we get a period and yet like we have to justify to society that like one, we have a period, two, we might experience period pain and we like, you know, there should be support from that. Three, we have to justify why I should be able to have the things I need so I'm not free bleeding. Meanwhile, you never have to justify like the fact that you need toilet paper to go to like take a fucking shit in a bathroom, right? Like if you walk into any public restroom, there's free toilet paper. And if there's not, you'd be kind of like pissed and surprised, right? Even at some like random middle of like bumpback nowhere, like, you know, rest stop, right? There's going to be toilet paper. And I think that in this case, like something that is inherent, like menstruation, we're having to like justify and defend those experiences, which I think is kind of a factor of like a lot of experiences of marginalized communities, even like, you know, the aspect of saying no and like the right to our body, the right to our choice. And I think that for me, that kind of zoomed out understanding of like all the different societal dynamics at play is really what motivates me through all the work over the last 
seven fucking years around periods and yeah. And do you equate, and maybe it's just a grouping because I think you kind of covered it, but do you equate period poverty with lack of resources or a lack of education or just this sort of male dominated view of the world that penises are more important than anything else, uh, any other type of genitalia? Like, what do you kind of equate it to, I guess? I don't know if I don't know if I would equate it to I mean, I mean so by definition I would say like period poverty is just not being able to afford access to what you need to maintain mental health due to a lack of income or lack of resources right I think that why it exists is like yeah patriarchy misogyny like you know I mean fundamentally even if you look at the language like the language that we use I'm like obsessed with etymology but like go for it like Truly, like the etymology behind like a penis, like comes from words that mean sword, right? Like a sword, like something that's more like dominating. And then then like the word vulva more comes from like a background that means like sheath, right? Like literally a sheath for a sword, right? So like even the language that we use is kind of built off this idea that like vulvas are in service of the penis, right? Like that there's something in service and it's even going back to the Bible. Like I grew up Jesuit Catholic and it was only in college that I like read Genesis, the beginning, like fundamental part of the beginning of our Bible and reading about how like God created woman from the bone of man so that she would be the helper and always never forget where she came from. And that part of the punishment for Eve eating the apple was like really painful menstruation and like menstruation in general. Right. And so I think that like, why does period poverty exist? Like so many reasons, but I think overall like we do live in a misogynistic world like from the root of our religion the root of our society the root of our language and so period poverty to me is just a result of all of those different things at play i think i've never watched darren be so turned on during an interview by (laughs) etymology she said etymology and i was like the second you said etymology (laughs) i watched her just be like Yes. Oh. Well, yes. I mean that's amazing. Hello. That's amazing. I, know. I, I love. Language. I was just an observer in all of that, and well, also thank you because that was an incredibly insightful and, le- and, and let me just educational minute or so. So thank you. For that. And I want to shout out a book I just read called Nine Nasty Words by John McWhorter, and he's a linguist. And my brother's girlfriend's a is under him, and she's a linguist at Columbia. So I'm into etymology and and linguists. And he talks about basically like these nine nasty words, including dyke, faggot the n-word bitch and literally all of them started as like kind of just like normal usage of terms and then they got to be uh so negative when they started being put onto women and it was all about or you know people who identify as women like it all became so sexist and so the sheath versus the sword is interesting well what about like even buddy sissy i was i talking about this with you or maybe this came up i don't know somewhere else but talking about the origin of like how brother like a nickname for brother is buddy and a nickname for sister is sissy and how like being called a sissy was like inherently pussy, becoming right, negative. right right anyway. or a pussy. right like it being yeah it's like something that exactly. is like weak and emotional i mean it like truly it's fascinating like even the word taboo which means like untouchable forbidden the root of that word comes from like the polynesian region from a word tapua which means menstruation, right? So like, there's so much from an etymological perspective. And like, I mean, we, I could, I am like fascinated. And this is why I loved writing my book and everything about like trying to understand where the stigma comes from. And I think a lot of it like does come from this realm of menstruation being kind of seen as this like dirty, shameful like thing that's almost like a punishment for like women in general. Yet the ironic part of it is like, menstruation is like what makes life possible right like the purpose of menstruation is like we're all here because menstruation exists and it's like a fundamental part of human life that being said i think it's also why menarche which is like a girl's first period in many countries is like kind of where these harmful gender rules really come into play right like dropping out of school getting married early undergoing female gender mutilation and a lot of like when a young girl throughout history was like married off was like when she got her period because she was not like a woman right like even through biblical you know text or like you know the novel the red tent like all of these different things are about like getting your period is like your sign that your purpose is now to like go have children but the harmful thing and like kind of goes beyond this if society frames like 
having a period as giving purpose to reproduce, it means that when menopause hits, what does that create in terms of a societal stigma for having period? It means like you are purposeless, right? That you're useless, right? And so there's so much of the work that goes into this. And I think for me, I got into the nonprofit work because I was like, fuck this, period products should be free for everybody. And then through my nonprofit work and through my um, writing the book, uh, all my work was about, well, how do I get people to talk about periods? In order to do that, I need to understand why the stigma exists. And it's really by asking that question that I really actually came to think, like, I need to start a brand because I was writing my book really feeling like capitalism and this period industry has been responsible for perpetuating negative stigmas around periods by bringing into mainstream culture this convincing of people who menstruate that they have to buy the product to hide their period to forget they have a period that we mm. need to use these euphemisms in mainstream media so we avoid saying the word period we don't use red liquid right and so i think for me the more and more i was like how do we you know end period stigma i kept coming back to this idea where like even as a nonprofit, who am I reliant on for funding, product to deliver, like all of these aspects, really it's this capitalist engine of businesses, right? And so then like, what is missing? To me, I was like, oh, it's just a social enterprise with a brand that builds a big enough platform that can take on the fucking industry. So that was kind of like the unexpected pathway to like what is now August. I, I think I saw a picture of you. It might have been one of your models on your site, but it said it had a shirt. And I'm paraphrasing here, so forgive me. But it was like, I can do everything you can do while bleeding. And I was like, that is amazing. And I need that shirt immediately. But it's so right. And along with that, what do you think is the biggest misconception about menstruation out there right now? I think the biggest misconception is that menstruation is equated to this idea of womanhood, right? Like, which one is like not gender inclusive. Um, and I think a lot of what we're trying to do even as a brand is saying like, we are built for anyone who menstruates, right? And a lot of the times when you see things in the femcare space, a lot of it is like, I mean, even the term feminine hygiene, which is like the label on the aisles of every drugstore mm -hmm. to list the tampon and the pads, like feminine isn't even the right word because that's in like a word to label gender expression, not like having a uterus and actually getting a period, right? Like we say menstrual hygiene or menstrual health or menstrual care. Um, we say, you know, menstruators and like people who get their periods, but also kind of what I was saying, which is like throughout society like history i think that it really has been menstruation being equated to like equals being a woman equals having children and like that being a sole purpose of having a period and i think a lot of that then means that you know i mean scientifically you get a period when like you are not pregnant right and if you're equating like a body to being like the purpose is to get pregnant that means getting a period is kind of like a symbol of that failure Right. And there's a lot of this kind of, mm, sure. there's some beautiful books that really talk about kind of the philosophy, philosophy behind this, but it means that, you know, if you, we're, we basically treat like, you know, women's bodies as like a machine, right. And if the machine isn't working and it's like defunct, that's when menstruation happens. So it's like then this added source of shame. Right. But I think that the biggest myth is that like menstruation equals womanhood which perpetuates the idea that womanhood equals purpose of reproducing which is like so oppressive and also like misogynistic uh, yeah to say the least to say the very least, yeah. misogynistic yeah. <laughs> you you mentioned the word girl boss and like hashtag no sleep earlier when I was asking you about you know your birdie article and in the birdie article you use girl boss a couple of times to describe kind of like the culture you were brought up in I will go on the record and say that I have never really cared term for that movement term hashtag I don't like the word. I don't like the vibe. I don't like anything of it. Do you ever like in your own kind of now after your experience of the last year use the word girl boss? Do you think that it's like an okay identifier and movement or do you think that it could be just being called a boss and whatever that is or like what's I've, like, your vibe on never the identified with the word like I've never been like I am a girl boss like no like that's not it at all. I think that it's really interesting because I really sh I really hate the word girl in general like not in the terms of like like I don't like the word in general but more like 
I feel like I'm still called a girl a lot, right? Like hashtag period girl or like being a girl boss. And like, I feel like for me, none of my peers who are, you know, cis men and like young founders of companies, they're never called a boy boss, right? They're just a boss, you know? Right. Right? True. Oh, that's a very good point. I love that. Sort of, um, I think showing that the ambition and everything, it's more like, it's never, I, I feel like girl boss to me is like kind of condescending and like perpetuating this idea of like, oh, it's like such a cute thing. Like it's a cute mm. thing that I feel like I could be in charge. But also I think that where it's really sad too is I think that when I first started hearing the word girl boss, I was like, oh, that's great, right? Like it's all of us kind of getting together being like, we can be in charge, right? But I think that because of a lot of different companies that were at play, girl boss became something that was a lot more toxic. That was about like, being about clout right and like being about social media and like when i say i yep. when i say girl boss i'm not using it as a term i'm referring to it as like the hashtag girl boss movement on social media which was like i don't know i just felt like it wasn't really about the work and it was more about like the clout and you know a lot of my own haters and people who critique me are like oh naughty is all clout and no work and that's something that i've always yeah. really struggled with because yeah i've always been yeah well, and oh, okay. I feel like, you know, also in the age of like slacktivism, right? Like people who are like post things on social media and they're like, and I'm an activist. And like, for me, like even the word activist is something that I struggle with too, because I believe that like everybody can be an activist if like they're pushing against the status quo, but hashtag activist has become like a very specific thing that denotes a lot of different requirements, right? And I think that for me, like hashtag girlbots just became representative of like taking the spotlight without really focusing on the work. And I've always been behind the scenes, anybody who knows me, so obsessed with the work, right? I've always been, even as a founder of a nonprofit, I it was very important to me that I knew exactly what our measurable impact was. Like at any point you could ask me like how many period products and tampons and pads did we go to like X number of shelters, X number of periods. So I could say, okay, I've run this organization for six years and we distributed 22 million units of period products, um, you know, to uh, shelters, organizations, to 800 plus campus chapters in 50 states and 50 countries. Like the numbers and measurable goals were really important to me. And similarly, like even with August, like I don't want to be a girl boss where I'm just saying like, like to me, the idea of girl boss is more about like, I'm a CEO of a company, we raised $2 million and like we're going to take over the world which for me i'm more like no these are the tangible steps of what we're trying to do right it's not just about the messaging and the reputation we're going right. to build but like these are my commitments to sustainability right like most period products take five to eight centuries to decompose ours are biodegradable within a year most companies say that like our i think feels through greenwashing like we will be firm about our commitments to carbon neutrality you know like recyclability like to me the idea of girl boss was like representative of what i felt like I could be in danger of being, right? Of getting caught up in kind of the clout and doing it for the wrong reasons. And for me, I have always been really obsessive about like the tangible impact in work. And at the end of the day, I think that that's, that obsession is the only thing that's gotten me to where I am because, you know, taking an organization from being something you do on the weekends on social media to, you know, a multi-million dollar budget organization takes being obsessed with those metrics because that's what you have to present to donors to investors to funders to be able to continue scaling that work right and so anyways long winded way of saying to me hashtag girl boss is really just like losing sight of the intentions belittling the actual potential of like being that boss and just losing sight of the actual work and tracking that progress which is i think also encapsulates a lot of the issues with our Democratic Party right now, which is a whole other issue. But yeah. Oh, I could go. I could go on about that. Amen. Um, you know, I used to be. <laughs> I used to hate getting asked like, "Where do you see yourself in five years?" I used to I didn't like that because like that kind of just denigrates the fact that life can just happen. But I'm sort of curious. I'm gonna kind of be a hypocrite here just for a moment. Uh, at 23 years old, a grown ass person here. Uh, what do you? hope to see within the next 10 years, maybe numbers wise? I mean, is it hitting, you know, 1 billion sort of uh, period products kind of being distributed throughout the country? What is your goal in the next 10 years? What would you like to see the world be? I mean, it's kind of crazy because August isn't even in the world two months yet, right? Like we just launched product, like we're so new. But I think that for me, like 
so the tampon tax is something that I care a lot about trying to push to take down. And one of our acts of resistance as a company is we're not going to make anybody pay for the tampon tax, right? Like we just were like, let's find the legal loophole. So like, if we don't support the tampon tax, we're not going to perpetuate it. Like we'll just cover it. But like, I believe that the U.S. needs to take down the tampon tax in the 30 remaining states, right? And there has been a lot of progress, but I don't see why not that can happen like in the next year, right? And maybe that's naive, but like it it takes like a fucking signature from governors, right? And a lot of governors or people in politics that I've spoken to don't even know that the tampon tax like exists in their state, right? And I do think um, I do think that that's something that needs to come down. And we have real world examples of it completely being taken down at a national level in Australia, in India. Like the US is rather far behind when it comes to this. Um, so I would say that that's one big part, you know, and taking down the tampon tax is not going to affect like solve period poverty because period poverty, like tampon tax affects people who are able to afford the products in the first place. Sure. But I think that it is like a big right. sweeping statement of like menstrual hygiene is not, is not privilege, right? And then from there, I think in 10 years, like, I think it would be so cool if we took note from what Scotland is doing and like every public high school and middle school should be required to provide period products for free in restrooms, right? Like it is required that toilet paper is and like soap is put in restrooms. Like we should do the same thing with um, period products, right? Um, and I'm not just saying like the girls restrooms, but unisex restrooms, like boys restrooms, like let's make this more accessible. I think period products should be completely free and provided in more than an adequate way in prisons. And it's like ridiculous that it isn't. Um, and there's like continuing to be a number of ACLU cases every year that are about like female inmates being denied access to period products, period products being used Same. as bargaining chips of power for like, you know, sexual favors. Like it is absolutely ridiculous that that still exists. So I think that they're like where I think I still get so excited about this work is that Period poverty to me is one of the only poverty related issues that has very tangible ways of solving it, right? Like it's hard to exactly say how you're gonna solve hunger or housing, but like with period poverty, here are like the like policy movements, like steps that we need to take to get period products in schools, shelters and prisons and taking down the tampon tax. So I don't know if we can do it in 10 years, but to me, that is very exciting to me as like something we can work towards. And it is interesting having that be a you know a ten year goal, but it like as a now a CEO of a business. But to me, I actually feel very empowered to do it as a business because for the first time in my career, I'm able to say, I'm going to be working on this from the impetus of starting conversations around periods to continuing to advocate for this policy change. And then when we get that policy passed, we have the period products to stock it and the operations to support it in a sustainable way. So I don't know that that to me is my ten year goal. It's just unfortunate that you haven't thought enough about this, Nadia. You know, it's just like, it's just, it's just, it's just unfortunate. I wish you were more authentic to the product you're selling. It sucks. You know, just, just that's know. my piece of advice God. to you. That's all. You know, it's just like. Oh my God, Darren. Um, Nadia, we tend to play sort of at the end of every episode, a game mm-hmm. called Scissor Me This, which is a rapid fire question game of fun, sometimes nonsense, sometimes not. Would you like to play that with us? Liz, tee it up. Okay, what is the best PMS snack? Um, Different for everybody, but for me, it's like anything cheese. Oh, God, now you're hitting the cheese. Yeah, like especially like boxed mac and cheese. (laughs) Amen. We're talking like blue box, right? I'm also insanely PMSing right now, and I bought a carton of Jenny's ice cream and ate half of it for uh, an appetizer. And let me just say, Annie's mac and cheese is good, but nothing beats the Kraft Blue Box. I mean, it just doesn't. Like, you just, like, you want the fakeness of the whole thing. Okay. What is the funniest thing you've ever heard about someone having their period? Do you have any funny, lighthearted stories about a a moment of someone? Or you? Or anybody? Um, I think any kind of more funny, lighthearted stories are just like we all have the embarrassing story of like bleeding through our clothes sure. and it's horrifying sometimes but I think a lot of the times like you look back on it and it's just funny yeah that's that's actually true the trauma that I've experienced through my period when I got it in my freshman year class I was like I laugh at that but I just remember the horribleness of that happening yeah. when it happened yeah that's fair exactly what does a dream vacation look like for mm. you um I okay this is so nerdy but 
like I'm still again recovering workaholic but like I love work vacations <laughs> so like of course I like Nadia. I genuinely I love like going to a beautiful beach place and like working on like at my little poolside and then hanging out yeah I love that I just like Liz. We I, need to do more. I we need to do more. Like we need to do more. Uh, yeah, I don't know if we're supposed. I right. I feel <laughs> conflicted because I feel like I'm not supposed right. to su- support that, and yet I support freedom of speech and freedom of right of vacation. Okay. But, okay. Well, all right. We all have our own vices, okay. right? I mean, I I do smoke weed. That's kind of my relaxation. Um. What is your vice to kind of relax? What is your self-care vice, maybe? Um, so for me, like my non-negotiables are that I work out for an hour a day. And um, I also sleep at least eight to 10 hours a night as of 2021. You're my hero. And my hero. That has been amazing. And also like today I slept until like noon and... I slept like 12 hours last night, you know? So like for me, um, I don't know if it's advice. I just, I, re- I really like sleeping and it means a lot to me because I spent my whole life until last summer um, being an insomniac, like sleeping two to four hours a night for years. And so now I'm like really catching up for the first two decades of my life. Wow. I mean, it's so funny because I woke up this morning to go to work out for an hour. Also helps me with my own personal anxiety. And I slept like seven hours and I was like, I fucking love to sleep seven, eight it's hours. It's a truth. Okay, that that redeems yeah, the like. She sleeps 12 hours, I don't know how but I feel she about loves a work vacation. vacation. It's okay. She's balanced out now. Yeah. She's balanced. All right, one more <laughs> piece. What's your last one, Liz? Okay, mine is actually a little bit more serious. And I know we didn't talk about this a lot, but, you know, during the pandemic, there was this really disgusting uptick of Asian assault and hate within our country and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you just in all honesty how you think that non-Asian Americans and non-Asians alike can support um, our Asian friends. I think um, first and foremost I think it's a lot of like education whether that be raising awareness but like people really doing their homework Um, and I've had to do my own homework of really understanding like the history of Asian America right and understanding like why is it that hate against Asian Americans has been dismissed for so long even with Japanese internment the Chinese Exclusion Act being so recent right and I think that first and foremost it's educating that Asian hate is not like this brand new thing that only existed during COVID it's like it's been a really strong history of it right Um, and then also I think it's about being an active bystander Um, I think one of the most heartbreaking things about a lot of the Asian hate that's happened is that even in a lot of the videos you see, there's not a lot of um, active bystanders that are there, right? And it's interesting because you see a lot of the videos coming forward and it's like security cam footage of like people being around, but none of those people actually filming it, right? Which is kind of, I think, different for a lot of other acts of violence that happen. I'm not comparing it, but I think that active bystanders is really important And I actually experienced this several weeks ago. I was at the Amsterdam airport and I was standing around like um, a Chinese family as well. And this like white guy in front of me turned around in line and screamed like, stop killing us, like stop coming into our country, you're killing us. And I didn't say anything. And I was just like frozen. And it was really hard for me and very triggering, right? Because it took me back to those moments where everything in my body wanted me to scream back and be like, no, no, no. But you are taught in those situations to not really speak back because you're trying not to like poke this bear. You don't want it to escalate into further violence. So I didn't say anything. But what the hardest part about that was, was that all the very crowded looping around lines of so many people around us just looked and stared and nobody said anything, right? And I think for people who are not Asian or like have the racial privilege or something, it's not just about educating yourself, but it's like, like, active allyship is not just like on social media it's like actually speaking out when you can and in that moment if the other people who are non-white would have said something that man would have been completely outnumbered but instead it felt like me and this this family behind me were the ones who were completely outnumbered by like i don't know this kind of silent violent um like spitting of words and so i think that active being an active bystander is really important 
Wow. I'm sorry that happened God, to you. I'm That's sorry. absolutely horrible. That's awful. I worry this about a little bit because my goddaughter is uh, Chinese and Japanese, and I, I worry a little bit of just, you know, her future. But I'm also hopeful mm-hmm. that conversations like this can kind of happen. Okay, last scissor me this. We're going to end on a positive note. What's your favorite thing to do on your period? Free bleed. <laughs> I think for me. Wait, what's free bleed? It's like literally like when your period, like I've had a really heavy period the last year. And it's just like when your period is so heavy and like, you know, even our August pads, which are like much more absorbent than normal pads because they have no plastic. Like it still just feels like so much. And I have like a series of black sweatpants where I'll literally just like lie on the ground and just free bleed and like not use any product, but I just like need to flush it out of my system and I'll have, there'll be blood everywhere and I'll like soak my pants the next day. But like I free bleeding to me is just like a, oh, I hate this. Like, you know, getting through it. Wow. This is, I'm not using free balling anymore. I'm using free free bleeding. That's my new uh, phrase. Wow, Nadia, you are incredible. I'm sure you get code that often, but you need to be told it even more. Uh, this was great. Where can people follow you? You know, get August. Uh, what's the website? Just give us all your social handles so people can, you know, support you. Yeah. So I'm just at Nadia Okamoto and August is at it's August on Instagram. It's August co everywhere else. And it's August.co on our website. Amazing. Well, you can follow us. And uh, as we try to start uh, doing anything good in in the world at SIAT podcast on all socials. Darren is at Carpe Darren. I'm listen to Liz. Nadia, it really such a pleasure. It really was a pleasure to have you you today. Thanks for being here. Scissoring Isn't a Thing is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SIAT Podcast. See you next Tuesday. 